Live from Lemert Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now to download our app and listen to us live anywhere in the world, but only by downloading our app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, uh, we invite you to check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast of our program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. And let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour two conversations. Up first, the difference between your job security and your career security. What is career security and how do you cultivate it? We'll unpack that in our two with career strategy specialist Phoebe Gavin. On the B side of our two, as we celebrate April as Black Women's History Month, the conversation with the founding president of the D.C. chapter of the National Coalition of 100 Black Women, Eris Scales. In our third hour today, are American colleges and universities truly the engines of progress and innovation that they are often portrayed as, or are they becoming parasitic entities that enrich themselves at the expense of communities that surround them? We'll be joined in our three by urbanist, cultural critic, author, and professor Devarian L. Baldwin. But in this first hour, two more conversations on the B side of this hour. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. Because I know America. President Biden officially announces his 2024 re-election campaign, setting up a potential rematch with Donald Trump. We'll be joined later in this hour by the chair of the Democratic National Committee, Jamie Harrison. But we commence today's program in tribute to the barrier-breaking singer, actor, and activist Harry Belafonte, who passed away this morning from congestive heart failure at his home on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, he was 96. Harry Belafonte was my friend. I get chills just saying that. Harry Belafonte was my friend. I posted some personal photos of us and tweeted this morning that the words legendary and iconic are too small for Mr. B. He was a world beater, a game changer, a freedom fighter in this country and indeed around the globe. I was blessed to travel the country and the world with Mr. B, attending all manner of events and rallies, hanging out at his house uh, in New York City, he at my house here in Los Angeles, and dined together in more great restaurants than I can count. But mostly I was honored to listen, to learn, to laugh, and hopefully to express 
my deep love for a man who fundamentally changed my life. Uh, this is so soon, I need time to process this loss, but I am pleased to be joined now by one who Mr. B respected, loved, and adored. One day I get a phone call from Mr. B who had uh, just arrived here in Los Angeles from New York. He's calling me to tell me that our friend, Connie Rice, is being honored later that week at a big black tie dinner in Beverly Hills and that we must go to support Connie. And so we did. I am pleased to welcome today our regular contributor and abiding friend of Harry Belafonte, Connie Rice. Connie, I, I dare not ask how you're doing. It's a rough day uh, for all of us who knew and loved uh, Mr. B, but uh, but how are you this morning? Well, Travis, I'm sad, uh, but you want to know something? Uh, just so grateful that I knew him. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh, this one hurts. It hurts, and uh, it hurts deeply, as, as I said this morning. Um, it's never easy to lose someone who who you love and who you care deeply for and have spent such great time with. Uh, and yet, to your point, this one hurts, and it hurts deep. Uh, I think in part because we are losing, here's that word again, these icons, these, these legends, these, these world beaters, these game changers. Um, these life alterers, we're losing them at a clip that's hard to keep track of. But you lose somebody like Harry Belafonte, what you recognize is that the world has lost someone who cannot be replaced. I mean, what he has done in this country and on the world stage um, is just hard to put into, in, into context. I, I teased him many times, Connie, about his book that he finally got around to writing some years ago. And how dense it was. <laughs> uh, it, it was a very dense text, as you know. And he said, uh, that's only half the story. I, I still couldn't convince the book publisher to tell all the rest of it. it he could have done a series of books about his work and about his, his witness. Um, what say you about the legacy of Harry Belafonte? I think the most astonishing thing is the galactic panorama. I mean, the vast span of his political life. And, you know, when you think about his life, and his book really could have been three times as long, it would have been over a thousand pages. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. Had they not cut it back. But um, it's a sweeping saga. And if you think about it, it began in the cruelty of Jamaica's cane fields. Mm -hmm. Think about that. And his mom brought him to Harlem. And he was you know, he, he, he used to roam the rough streets of Harlem with a crew before Paul Robeson found him and put him in an acting troupe. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, and that was one of the things he shared with the gang members here in L.A. was that, you know, he says, I know I used to be in a gang. And when he engaged them that way, Harry, you know, I, I'd never seen them engage with anybody like they did with Harry Thomas. I just... But but when you go when I think about from the cane fields of Jamaica to the streets of Harlem, where did he go? He could have stopped with hit records and the first to star in this as an African American, the first to sing in this as an African American. When I met him, he didn't even talk about that stuff. Mm -hmm. He was talking about. Mississippi's terrain of terror. He was talking about South Africa's Robben Island, the killing fields of Cambodia and Rwanda. Uh, 
I mean, he he would he would he would he had such reverence. He, he never talked about himself. He talked about Eleanor Roosevelt mm-hmm. and Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker and Bayon Rustard and Mahatma Gandhi and Malcolm X and Cesar Chavez and Rosa Parks and all the way to Nelson Mandela, Kwame Nkrumah. You know, I mean, Biko. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even—I didn't even mention, you know, when he said we went from we had King everywhere, but when we came back from World War II as African American soldiers in the Tuskegee Airmen, he said the battle for liberation was on. There, there was no way that after liberating folks from Auschwitz, we were going to come back to Mississippi mm-hmm. and have people spit on us. And he said, when we came back from from World War II, the fight for liberation was on. From Jackie in the dugout yeah. to Thurgood in the courthouse, Robeson in the playhouse, Rosa Parks at the bus stop, Fannie Lou Hamer at the DNC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he would run it down. He could tell the lessons of his incredible uh his just the span of his political journey, and he could tie it to the reality of the people he was addressing, because Robeson taught him Paul Robeson, the great Paul Robeson, who was too big for this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had to leave, like 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 Baldwin had to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Boys, greatest and Du Boys, yeah, Du yeah. Boys, they mm-hmm. had to leave because this country would have killed them. But Robeson, before he completely left, he found Harry in the streets of Harlem, and he put him in that acting troupe, and he told Harry the biggest lesson of his life. He said, get them to sing your song, and they might, they might just listen to your ideas. And that's what he said. He, Harry said, Connie, Paul Robeson put me in another gang. He put me not in a gang of petty crime, but he put me in the gang for justice. He told that story many times uh, to Connie, to me, to anybody who would listen. Um, he, You couldn't talk to Mr. B more than a few minutes without the name Paul Robeson coming up. Robeson had just a huge imprint on his life and his work and his witness. And that story of uh, Robeson telling Belafonte, get the world to sing your song. And then maybe they will listen to some of your ideas. Uh, Connie mentioned a long and brilliant list of all the persons Harry Belafonte knew personally and worked with personally. Um, I have had I've had more conversations with Mr. B uh, privately and publicly than perhaps anybody I know. Um, thankfully, so many of those conversations were in the public domain on television and on radio. Here's a clip now uh, as we come forward of Harry Belafonte talking to me uh, about his friend. Uh, Dr. King, his friend Martin, and how his vision uh, helped to heal this country. I think what Dr. King understood and imparted those feelings to the rest of us who shared uh, many of his thoughts, if not all, uh, was the fact that until this country really and truly makes the commitment to discuss and to debate race issues as a, as a concept, as a, as a practice in our midst. This country will never be able to heal 
not only ancient wounds, but we'll never be able to fulfill what it says is its aim, which has become a great democratic state, mm -hmm. open to the voices of all people to express themselves. With Tavis Smiley, the conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Daylight come and me won't go home. Work all night and I drink a rum. Stack banana till the morning come. Daylight come and me want go home. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight come and me want go home. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight come and me want go home. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. Our dear friend and brother Harry Belafonte has made his transition at the age of 96. And um, still trying to process this. Uh, as I said earlier, as she said earlier, she being Connie Rice, our guest in the hour, who was a dear friend, an abiding friend of Mr. B, as was I. Um, still trying to process this. Um, even when you know it's coming at 96, a life uh, long lived, a life well lived, uh, it still hurts uh, when, uh, when that moment finally, finally comes. Um, Connie, that, that, that song that we're listening to has been played around the world countless times and recorded and covered. And Mr. B would always remind us that that song is really a protest song. They play it all the time at NBA games and other sporting events and music events. But it really is a protest song, is it not? It is a protest song, and what, what strikes me is that the last clip that you pay, played showcased how Harry had this eloquent, almost Shakespearean way. It was a poetic genius, the level of eloquence that he had. And that song is such simple language, and it's so powerful because it is a protest against the slavery and the cruelty of the cane fields. And let me tell you a story about how how powerful that song was. When he came to L.A., I met him, I met him in L.A. when we get, did the Thurgood Marshall Awards, and it was uh, Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte together getting the, Thurgood Mar the first Thurgood Marshall Award given by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and it was held here in L.A., and uh, Elaine Jones, my boss, the first woman to head the Legal Defense Fund, called me and said, Connie, I can't get there. You've got to meet Mr. Belafonte. Long story short, I'm waiting for him at his, at his hotel down by the pool in Beverly Hills. And he comes down this wrought iron stairs, and, and he looks at me, and I had these thick Coke bottle glasses <laughs> and this wild soccer con hair. And, and you know, Tavis, I'm not good with small talk. You, you know I'm awkward. You know. But uh, I'm good in court, but don't, don't ask me to do small talk. He comes down, and he says, he says, 
from where do you hail and what is it that you do? Mm. And I mean, <laughs> and I said, I said, boy, he speaks like a Shakespearean actor, which is what he was. Yeah. You know, Tavis, I told him, I said, look, I'm sorry, Mr. Belafonte. I, I don't like celebrity. I don't like Hollywood. I'm not good with it. He said, well, that makes two of us. Thank you. <laughs> and he started in Tavis five hours later. Five hours later, we had gone through all of his battles, mm-hmm. all of his, you know, <laughs> from the civil rights revolution to Angola to Robben Island. And I, we just completely lost track of time. And Julie comes down the stairs in her evening gown and she says, are you two going to come with us or is this, are you going to just stay here the whole night? (laughs) But but I had told him, I said, I can't stand these kinds of gala dinners. Mr. Belafonte, he says, call me Harry. I said, but, but I said, he said, tell me more about the gang work. Because I had told him about the Crips and Bloods gang truce that had been forged and how I was working, I was trying to help the men who would, hit the streets at night to enforce it. Mm-hmm. And they were gang, and it was the beginning of the gang intervention movement. And it was Fred Williams and Tommy Elam and Bo Taylor, and it was a whole bunch of amazing former gangsters who had decided, as they said, Ms. Rice, we've gone from predator to peacemaker now, and we need your help. And so I told him about that work, and he said, tell me more. I said, well, you can meet them tonight because I bought a table for them at the gala. He said, they're going to be gangsters at a Hollywood gala. <laughs> he said, come on, girl, let's go. <laughs> then he became excited about the dinner, you know, because mm. there were going to be gang members there. He didn't care about, I mean, there were stars, you know, you could just rattle them off, you yeah. know, all from his past, his present, the future. He, I met him, at, we, I rode with him to the, to the hotel where the gala was. He could barely shake the hands of Sidney Poitier and Elaine Jones, and he's like, where are the gangsters? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we couldn't peel him away. He, he changed his head table. He's supposed to sit at the head table because he's the honoree along with Mr. Poitier. Mm-hmm. He took his chair and put it at the gangster's table. <laughs> we couldn't even find him. But the next day, so, he, so at the end of the evening, he met. He met all. He just stayed at that table, and he walked to accept the award from their table, not his table. And, it, and, and Elaine Jones was glaring at me like you've just messed the whole dinner up. But he was so enthralled with him. He said, "Where? What are you doing tomorrow? I want to be with them tomorrow." And I said, "Well, I'm going down to Jordan Downs, which is one of the big housing projects in Watts." And so at by nine o'clock, we were in Jordan Downs housing project. And Tavis, the windows flew up, first 10, then 30, all, everybody standing in their windows singing Deo. And I looked at that and I said, okay, I may not like celebrity, but what I understood was that because of that song, there were children their fathers and mothers, their grandmothers and their great-grandmothers, all singing Deo to this amazing troubadour for justice. And the tears just flowed down his face. Yeah. And I hear your tears over the radio. Uh, And if we ain't careful, I'll I'll have some here. Um, Hmm. I um I want to get kind of to, to tell a, a funny story here. Maybe we can just uh, 
pivot for a second if she can uh, pull it together. I know she can. There's a funny story, though, I know, because um, I know Connie, and I, of course, know Mr. B. And uh, Connie was with Mr. B one time, and she uh, made a huge faux pas um, when she suggested we need to find somebody who knows something about music. Connie, you recall this story? Oh yeah, we. Um, I got about I got about I got about ninety days. I got about ninety seconds. Tell that story right quick. Connie. Okay, he, he was. We were playing in Urban Peace Awards, which was to celebrate the gang truces between the Crips and the Bloods, and mm. then between the Black gangs and then Latino gangs. And we had this great big big gala, and this was a gala he really wanted to do. Long story short, we're in, I'm in his apartment in Manhattan, and uh, we're planning all this stuff. We've lined up all this stuff, and then I turn to him and I stupidly say, "Okay, but who do we know who can do the music?" <laughs> He didn't miss a beat. He didn't miss a beat. He said, thank God she's actually capable of saying something stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I have forgotten he's a musical genius. And I looked at him and I seriously said, now who do we know who can do the music? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But that, but that, that it's a funny oh. story, and that's why I wanted Kai to tell it. Uh, because, again, when you were in his presence, he spent so much time shining light on others, never about himself. And because he, he was such a long-distance runner, so many of us know him as an activist. But to really understand the impact of his backstory, um, the first one to have like a gold or platinum record and all the other honors and all the other accolades, so much achieved in this long life of love and service uh, to us in this country and indeed the world. Um, sometimes it was just so he, he was so ubiquitous. It was hard to remember oftentimes all that he had done. And yet I was never once in his presence when it was ever lost on me that I was seated uh, with greatness, uh, with genius. Uh, Harry Belafonte will be sorely, sorely missed by those who loved him and uh, by the world, frankly. More about tribute to Harry Belafonte with Connie Rice when we come forward on KBLA Talk. Find a righteous range and don't be afraid to say what you see. For KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Our guest in this hour is our regular contributor, Connie Rice. Uh, We were both uh, honored and humbled and grateful. Uh, to be friends of Harry Belafonte, who has uh, made his transition this morning at his Upper West Side uh, Manhattan home at the age of 96. And Connie's been there many times. I've been there many times. First of all, his home was amazing because it's like a museum. When you walked into Harry Belafonte's home and you saw all of the photos, I mean, everywhere you look, there are photos of Harry Belafonte with every major icon, Eleanor Roosevelt, Nelson Mandela, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Martin King, of course, his friend Sidney Poitier, uh, all around the apartment, uh, his spacious apartment in Manhattan are these photos. And then on the wall, there's a long wall when you walk through the front door. You remember that wall, Connie? There's a long wall. And on that wall, all of these letters, all of these letters, personal letters to him, his correspondence with other greats, Bobby Kennedy, and just, I mean, the list goes on and on and on of all the people he knew, all the people whose lives he impacted. As I said earlier, he did so much in his life, uh, accomplished so much, it's hard to keep track of all that he did. Here's a clip of uh, a conversation that he and I had once uh, on television uh, about his sitting in one night, one week in fact, for Johnny Carson, Harry Belafonte was so big and so beloved that even as a black man, 
the first black person ever to sit in for a week for the iconic Johnny Carson, host of The Tonight Show. Check this out. So he's sitting in for Johnny Carson for a week on The Tonight Show. And because of their friendship, only Harry Belafonte could get Dr. King. He didn't do this. Only Mr. B could get Dr. King to sit down for a conversation on The Tonight Show. King flies from Atlanta to New York. He's running late, trying to get to the show, which is live. He lands at the airport. And I'll let Mr. B pick the story up and take it all the way through to the joke that he told opening the show. You take it and run. You remember this, don't you? Yes, I do. All right. Tell the story. I love it. By the time he went on air, Dr. King had not arrived. So he made quick adjustment to fill his slot and how he would cover the spot. About a quarter of the way into the show, Dr. King showed up so he could go back to plan A. And when he came on air, uh, he didn't give me a chance to do very much but hug him and greet him and he sat and he said, I must beg your forgiveness for the consternation and the cause of uh, anxiety here. He said, but I have had my own experience. I left Atlanta late, the plane was late, I got to the airport, I got into the cab, the driver recognized me and he said, what are you doing in town? And I told him that I was late coming to for this broadcast with you and all he had to hear was that I was late. And uh, that man hit the gas and took me on a drive that uh, was the most nervous experience of my life. He zoomed in and out of traffic. And I had to tap him on the shoulder and said, Sir, uh, if you don't mind, uh, I appreciate your sense of urgency, but uh, I'd rather be known as Martin Luther King late than the late Martin Luther King. <laughs> <laughs> Told brilliantly. King tells that story on The Tonight Show, and the joke killed. And it, it gave people a rare glimpse at a man that you knew up close who was actually rather funny. But it gave me an opportunity to lead into a question that was uh, rebroadcast several times because I asked him, in fact, how did he feel about death? And did he fear for his life? And he took that moment to reveal for the first time before a large American audience that he had come to peace with the idea of death. That he really was not deeply uh, distracted by about life as a, an experience of just the longevity. He was concerned about the quality of life and how he used it. And uh, that fact stood uh, indelibly in my mind because during the earlier years he had developed a psychological uh, uh, tick. He constantly had occasion to go into ecups and he just silently. And I asked him about it, he just said, I don't know, I just feel anxiety. And whenever I have anxiety, that comes about. And I noticed that over a number of days or weeks recently, that was no longer evident. And he said it was because he had come to peace with the issue of death. Only Harry Belafonte, Connie, um, could be sitting in for, for Johnny Carson and have as one of his guests that week, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on The Tonight Show. There's a documentary about that one week. Um, I don't have time to get into it. Uh, we're doing a full hour tribute to Harry Belafonte again tomorrow in my third and final hour tomorrow. Uh, a full uh, hour tribute to Harry Belafonte with many more clips of my conversations and our interactions. Um, but there's a documentary just about that one week because his guest list 
that one week because he knew everybody was so off the chain. Johnny Carson couldn't book the Tonight Show the way Belafonte booked the Tonight Show just in that one week. I digress on that point, but Connie, what I want to get to right quick, just watching my time another five or seven minutes with you before we're joined by the DNC chair, Jimmy Harrison, on the occasion of President Biden announcing his reelection campaign today. Um, do that in a few moments here. But every time I talk to him, Connie, I felt like uh, – I was being connected in real time to history. In so many ways, he was himself uh, not just iconic, not just legendary, but a historian, if you will. Oh, he was an historian, and he was a poetic historian. Mm -hmm. he, he, he swept you up in the saga of history, in the lessons of history. And you never missed a chance to tell you. I mean, he, he taught history and what its relevance was to everybody he met. He mm -hmm. didn't it matter whether it was kings or prisoners. And I have to tell you, the happiest I ever saw him was in prisons. I mean, he, he created a choir at the, the, the uh, uh, Institute for Women out here in Chino, California, the women's prison. He created a choir when he realized he couldn't, they couldn't come to the Urban Peace Awards. He had them produced, and they made a record, and we played it at the awards. He just... We talked about his wall of celebrity in his, in his legendary apartment, but you want to know something, Tavis? You know the pictures he treasured most weren't the pictures of the of the VIPs. They were the pictures of him when he went to Biafra, when he was the UN ambassador mm -hmm. uh, for human rights. And there, I have I have about seven photographs framed of him holding starving infants, mm -hmm. and he's feeding one of them. And the look of love in his eyes as he's holding each child, he gave me those framed pictures because he said, these are the pictures I cherish most. And so it was always, he didn't just carry history with him and share it and teach it. He empowered people with it. He totally empowered people with it. And he left them inspired to take the baton that he had been handed from Robeson and all of his great mentors, and he handed it to mm -hmm. others. Yeah. And it was, as you said, it was never about him. It mm -hmm. was never about him. It was always about the mission, the mission of justice and human dignity. And, you know, he, he had a sense of himself. You know, it would have been so easy for him to just be a celebrity. He didn't believe in that stuff. That's yeah. how he got along with me. But, you know, he, he used his celebrity, the power of celebrity, to free and liberate others. Yeah. And the reason we are so sad is because there will never be another like him. There can never be another like him because that span of history can never be traveled again. I'm certain you've had um, these same conversations, and I'm just watching my time here. Um, we'll just talk until the chairman calls me, and then we'll, we'll switch gears here. Um, but I've had more conversations than I can count with him where he expressed his own chagrin, trying to find the right word, his own disappointment, his own angst about the fact that given that you used the word baton earlier, he said to me many times, Tavis, I feel like we, that my generation failed in the passing of the baton. And it's a question of whether or not we drop the baton. I mean, I'm talking about my generation now and all those that follow me, Connie. The question was whether or not we had dropped the baton, whether or not, you know, his generation had given us a bad handoff. And I told him time and time again, oh no, oh no. If anything, we 
have dropped the baton, but your generation gave a really, really good handoff to us. What we've done with it is a whole nother question. Did you ever have a conversation with him about his own feelings of failure, uh, given what all that he had done? My sense was he didn't feel like he had accomplished what he really set out to do. Yes. Uh, the last conversation I had with him was about two months ago, and he said that. He said, Connie, I, I said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, Harry, the greatness, your greatness is measured by what your time required of you to do. What was it possible for you to do in your time, and did you do it? And I said, you not only did what was possible, you did what was impossible. And it's not that you didn't handle, you handed us everything you had, everything that your movement, King's movement, all of the millions of African Americans and, and our allies who marched and bled and died so that we stand where we stand today. I said, you ended apartheid. I said, the thing that, the thing you need to understand is that you did everything you could do in your context and in your time. The problem for us is that the context broke. Mm. The time broke. We are in we are in a desert. We don't have any rules. We don't have the the old rules don't apply. The civil rights movement is exhausted. We don't have a new plan. That's not your fault. It's not even really our well, it is a little bit of our fault because we're not stepping up to realize that in our time we are failing to recognize what the challenges are. He knew what his challenges were. He galvanized the world to meet them, and he didn't fail. And his challenge to us is for us also not to fail. Connie, I, I love you and I adore you, uh, as did Mr. B. Uh, and um, as you know, early this morning, um, after reaching out to his wife, Pam, and his daughter, Gina, uh, my first phone call was to you <clears throat> because I know how much you meant to him and how much he meant to you. Um, it's a difficult day. Uh, and the days ahead will be difficult, but I want to thank you for your sharings uh, in this hour about the life and legacy and your abiding friendship over decades with Harry Belafonte. Tomorrow, once again, in the final hour of our program, Hour 3, a full hour uh, tribute to Harry Belafonte with uh, more great clips you'll want to hear. Uh, I had the honor of sitting with Harry Belafonte on his 90th birthday for a, a full show on my television program. And we're going to bring you that entire conversation tomorrow and some other clips of great conversations I've had over the years with Harry Belafonte. For now, I thank Connie Rice for uh, sharing with us in this hour. Connie, I love you again. Appreciate you. I'll talk to you soon. Love you too, Davis. Take care. We transition from that conversation by Harry Belafonte right now to the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, uh, Jamie Harrison. Uh, as you heard earlier today on this program, on this station, uh, Joe Biden has announced that he is, in fact, seeking re-election. Uh, and I'm pleased once again to have on this program for a few minutes between now and the top of the hour, the chair of the Democratic Party, Jamie Harrison. Chairman Harrison, how are you today, sir? I'm great, Tavis. How are you, my friend? It's a rough day, man. It's a rough day. Uh, Harry Belafonte was a dear yeah, dear friend and brother of mine, and uh, I am sorry that uh, uh, that uh, I have you on the program on a day that um, that uh, Mr. B has passed. But if 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 his work and witness, if his life and legacy is about anything, it has been about not the shrinking, but the expanding of rights for all of us in this country. Uh, and I don't need to make Harry Belafonte political. He was, in fact, political. And so it, it seems apropos in some ways on this day.
that he'd make his transition as Joe Biden, uh, who has been uh, trying to uh, address an agenda of expanding rights for all Americans, announces his reelection bid. Your thoughts on the president's announcement uh, uh, earlier today? Uh, well, let me first say, um, Mr. Belafonte, who uh, I admire greatly, and he was supportive of my campaign when I ran for the United States Senate, and he was so kind to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he will definitely be missed by so many, and I recognize, you know, as a 47-year-old black guy from South Carolina, who's the chair of the Democratic Party, that I stand on his shoulders. Uh, his activism and his voice allowed uh, a moment for me to shine, allowed for Vice President Kamala Harris to be who she is. And so uh, and so just I'm just grateful for him and the life and legacy that he left for all of us. Indeed. Um, as, as it relates to President Biden, you were right. You know, this is a president who spent his first term of office fighting for freedom, fighting for more rights and not less, fighting to secure and protect our democracy. And today he announced that he's running for re-election to finish that job for the American people. Uh, and he's running with our vice president, Kamala Harris, another histor- hist- historic figure in and of herself. Um, and, Tavis, when you think about it, it's, it's in the contrast of the extremism that we see from uh, MAGA Republicans, these people who are literally trying to take us back, mm. who are focused on gutting Social Security and Medicare, who are focused on taking away health care decisions for women, banning books, uh, who have chosen the NRA over protecting our kids, uh, and are really trying to curtail our voting rights in in every one of these states. Um, When they don't agree with you, we saw what happened in Tennessee. They vote you out of the legislature. Or in Florida, they say, well, uh, let's, let's try to pass a bill to say, that we eliminate the Democratic Party, because that's what you do in, in opposition. But we have a president who is has put his, la- uh, his line in the sand and say, I'm going to fight for the freedom and the rights of the American people. And so I'm proud of this moment. Uh, I'm proud of what he has done and what he's accomplished. Um, and so, uh, you know, just looking forward to, to this re-election fight that we got ahead of us. I got five more minutes with you uh, and I want to just uh, cover a few more topics right quick. So all the headlines today um, read in one way, shape or form that his announcement officially that he is running for re-election sets the stage for what may very well be a replay, part due, if you will, of Trump uh, v. Biden. Um, Your thoughts on that on that possibility? I mean, listen, uh, who knows what the Republican Party will do, Tavis? I, I have no idea. Uh, and to, frankly, I don't really care mm-hmm. because all of them are extreme. Every single one of them, Trump, Haley, Scott, and I can go on and on. My grandma said you put them all in the bag and you don't know what will fall out, uh, who's going to fall out first mm-hmm. uh, because they're all awful. They're all against American democracy. They're all against uh, they're all for taking away the rights of the American people. Um, But what I know is that we have a president, Joe Biden, who has delivered on his promises and have gotten more done than any president that I know in my in my lifetime. Uh, And given the fact that he had a 50 50 United States Senate and less than a five seat majority in the House, I mean, created 12 million jobs near the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, largest investment in climate and, and clean energy in the history. 
first black woman on the, on the Supreme Court, manufacturing boom that we're seeing, historic in, investment in our infrastructure. And we had the best midterm election since FDR. Mm-hmm. Um, so this president's accomplished a lot. Uh, what we will be spending the next few weeks and months is talking about those accomplishments and how he has delivered for the American people and how he's not finished yet. And, and we, need, we need to get him reelected and we need to get more Democrats in the House and the Senate. Um, the success of those midterm elections, uh, in part, uh, kept any other Democrat on the sideline who may have been thinking about or might have been thinking about challenging him. Uh, no one has really gotten in this race. Um, there is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., of course. There is Marion Williamson. Uh, but he kept all the big-name Democrats on the sideline, in part, I believe, because of the success in those midterm elections, his age notwithstanding. But as you well know, everybody keeps talking about the age thing. Is that going to be a factor? You know what, Tavis? Uh, something that I've learned in life, with age comes experience. Mm-hmm. And we have seen all of the things that he has done with that experience. And I just don't know of any other president, and we've had younger presidents to come about, to be able to do what he did with the slim majorities that he had. I mean, the reason why he's been able to do this is because he understood Washington. He understood the players in Washington and how to navigate those personalities and leverage his relationships to get things done for the American people. And in the end of the day, the reason why we go to the polls to vote for somebody is we want them to deliver for us. Name me anybody who's delivered more than Joe Biden has done, mm-hmm. given what he the hand that he was dealt with. And, do, and that's you, why we want people to watch him. Yeah, but but you uh, not to interrupt. I'm sorry. Do you think I I do not? And I've said I've said so on this program any number of times, uh, Chairman Harrison. Uh, but do you think he's gotten the credit he deserves for what he has in fact accomplished? Uh, he has not gotten the credit that he deserves. But we are going to make sure, Tavis, that we go all across this country, urban areas, rural areas. Uh, the South, the Midwest, the Northeast, the West, we are going to make sure that by the time that people go to the polls in November of 2024, they know every single thing that Joe Biden has done for the American people, what Kamala Harris has done for the American people, that currently many Republicans are trying to take credit for right now in terms of these infrastructure investments. Right. But they know that it's this president that actually got it done for them. Last question. I know you got a full schedule today, and I thank you as always for your time uh, calling into our program here on KBLA Talk 1580. Um, he is, to my mind, already the presumptive nominee for uh, his party uh, come 2024. And yet there is this issue, as you well know, uh, called turnout. you got to turn out the vote. Uh, even if you're the the nominee. And there are all kinds of questions being raised about the base not being excited, even though nobody had the temerity to run against him. Can you excite the base? Will his candidacy excite the base? Will it lead to the kind of turnout he needs to defeat whoever they put up in 2024? We will excite the base because in the end, the base of this party will hear about how Joe Biden, even with the Republican obstructionism, has fought for them. I mean, when you think about things like the student loan reform, I mean, Tavis, you and I know that's a big deal. I'm, I'm a Pell Grant kid. Uh, and this president was the first president that had the boldness to say, you know what, we need to do something about this. And we need to stand up for these working people in this country on health care, on climate. It's this president that stood up. We saw in the midterm elections the second highest turnout of young people in the last 30 years. Um, when we get young folks, people of color to the polls, and when we talk to seniors about how we have now delivered for them 
on capping the cost of prescription drugs, on capping their health care costs, uh, we're going to see a coalition like we've never seen before. Remember this, folks. 80 million people went to the polls in November and voted for uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. That had never happened for any person who's ever had their name on the ballot for president of the United States in this country. Uh, and I'm looking to make sure we even get more than 80 million uh, in this 2024 race. Uh, DNC Chair Jamie Harrison, thank you, first of all, for your kind reflections and thoughts and words about our dear friend and brother Harry Belafonte, who transitioned earlier this morning in New York at the age of 96. Thank you for your work and witness as chair of the party. Uh, and thank you, finally, for always uh, accepting my phone call and agreeing to come on this program uh, at critical moments such as this. I appreciate you, sir. All the best to you, my friend. Thank you so much, Tavis. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. A safe place to go loud. 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 A great place for progressive politics. KBLA Talk 1580. 